This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Banana omelets, banana sandwiches, banana casseroles, mashed bananas molded in the shape of a British lion rampant, blended with eggs into batter for French toast, squeezed out a pastry nozzle across the quivering, creamy reaches of a banana blancmange. Tall cruets of pale banana syrup to pour oozing over banana waffles. A giant glazed crock where diced bananas have been fermenting since the summer with wild honey and muscat raisins, up out of which, this winter morning, one now dips foam mugs full of banana mead, banana croissants, and banana creplac, and banana oatmeal, and banana jam, and banana bread, and bananas flamed in ancient brandy pirate brought back last year from a cellar in the Pyrenees, also containing a clandestine radio transmitter. That's how Thomas Pynchon described the banana breakfast in his densely encyclopedic 1973 novel, Gravity's Rainbow. And it's clear that the man has bananas on his brain, but perhaps not nearly as much as the bruised and spoiled synapses of Lieutenant Detective Christian F. Bigfoot Bjornsson, whose appetite for the yellow crescent sneaks nightward across the borderline of simple hunger and into the lawless landscape of horny melancholy obsession. Which, when you think about it, isn't that a preoccupation both depressed and thirsty? The mood of inherent vice as a whole? Further, after the melancholy big sleepisms of the seductive opening scene, and the twisty-turny plot mechanics of Doc pinballing from Pipeline Pizza to Aunt Reed's phone line, to brunch with Dennis rhymes with penis, to learning another lesson in the long, sad history of L.A. land use, before taking a ball bat to the head after being on the losing end of Jade's Pussy Eater special, don't we deserve a break with the funniest stretch of film in all of Inherent Vice? Well, that's what our host thinks anyway, as he takes another bite of old Bigfoot's favorite chocolate-covered fruit snack before diving straight in. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about this. It's, you know, it's not ice cream. No. <laughs> but it's not bad. And I'm sure, and I'm sure everyone listening is going to love hearing that noise in between you know? sentences. But I suppose I should, <laughs> I should explain what's happening here. If one thing has been made abundantly clear in the course of this podcast is that you cannot, cannot, cannot have a conversation about Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice without addressing a very specific subject. That hippie-hating mad dog and renaissance detective Christian F. Bigfoot Bjornsson. In my opinion, there is no funnier, freakier, or more fascinating character in the film as his funhouse mirror-stretched nostalgia and melancholy and longing for times and love past are quite simply the thematic soul of the film, writ large across his stony, chrome-magnum face. And additionally, if you're going to talk about Bigfoot, and we have to talk about Bigfoot, there's one thing you have to address. Chocolate, covered, frozen, bananas, which myself and my guest are currently munching on right now as professionals. And that's where we are today, in what has been the number one with a bullet most asked for scene amongst Increment Vice guests. 
and joining me on that journey through oddly sexualized frozen fruit treats today is someone I just could not say no to when she asked for this sequence. She is the brand and editorial manager for Netflix Film, the force behind CinemaFanatic.com and OldFilmsFlickr.com, the creator of November, and Jesus, how cool is that? And if you don't know what that is, what are you doing listening to a show like this? As well as hashtag a year with women, in which, in which she spent a year only watching films written and or directed by women, and is the social media force behind at Old Films Flickr on Twitter, which is one of the only justifications for Twitter's continued existence at this point. The one, the only, staring at me above a microphone while holding a frozen chocolate-covered banana, Mariah Gates. Hi. Hello. Oh, Lord, and I forgot the most important thing. I'm so <laughs> sorry. Or I, I forgot pertinent to the scene that we're going to discuss today, which does not just involve blowing bananas. Mm-hmm. You are the creator of Benicio Del Take Me Tumblr dot com. Oh, I got that wrong. Yeah. I got it wrong. Yeah. Help me out. It's Benicio Del Take Me Now dot Tumblr dot com. <laughs> it hasn't been updated in a while, but I um back in the height of Tumblr, you know, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, two thousand eleven, mm-hmm. I had a lot of Tumblrs. I think I have like maybe fifty Tumblrs, sub Tumblrs. I have a lot <laughs> of interests and I made a lot of Tumblrs and one of them was a Benicio Del Toro um Tumblr. I'm trying to remember what he must have done at that time that made me obsessed. Well, whatever the case may be. <laughs> I, like I mean, I was always obsessed since, like, traffic pre- at the very least. But um, something in the mid to late, like, last decade, he was in something that, like, reignited. But well, now I have no idea what it was. Before we go down that cul-de-sac, <laughs> I feel like that's an appropriate thing to mention. Because would we would, would the kids call this a thirsty scene? Is it, this is a thirsty episode. This so. is going to be a thirsty episode. I think so. I mean, we're both munching on these frozen bananas. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I don't want to forget Benicio. I don't want him to get lost in the shuffle. So I think it's important that we mention that you are also thirsty for Benicio. Oh, yeah. Bro. That know, needs to be documented. He gets he gets better looking with age, too. Like, the more salt and pepper he gets, you're like, yes. Yes. <laughs> also, feel- there's that. Do you remember that, like... Um, paparazzi video where he was at Ch- the Chateau Marmont with with Terrence with Malick. Terrence Malick, but the guy didn't know it was Terrence Malick. That <laughs> was like my favorite thing ever. The most amazing short film ever made are the expressions shared between Benicio del Toro <laughs> and Terrence Malick when Benicio immediately begins smirking, realizing what's happening. Yeah, Malick is in a panic. And the camera guy has no idea what the hell's <laughs> happening. It has no idea that at that time, the Bigfoot of cinema is standing right there. Yeah. Well, well not Bigfoot, Bjornsson. Yeah, the, but they were like, The Sasquatch no, of cinema no is standing photos. right there that before was, him, that was, smirking. That was back when the only photo you could get of Terrence Malick was that one with him, the big smile the and big that hat. The big grinning Wikipedia yeah. shot. Yeah, and it's like, what the hell? So good. It's funny, just before we started recording, I told you one of the things about Increment Vice is we never stick on topic once the scene plays. We're not only, we're like five <laughs> minutes into this and we're already talking about TMZ and Terrence Malick, you which know? is I think a record for the show. <laughs> Get us back on track. Let's let's rewind. Let's okay. go back. Let's go back to 2014, 2014, December 2014, which is right before you launched your A Year with Women. Yeah, this, this is one, was, of, the la- this this is one is of the last movies you watched. One of the last movies directed by men I watched in for a year. Let yeah. me ask you, 
how did it treat you first time so out? So I actually saw it almost five years ago to the date. I looked it up. That's right. I saw it on 12, 12, 14 in 70 millimeter at the Cinerama Dome. Same. Um, I, wrote, I, wrote, I wrote this down because I was watching my video review that I did of it, and it was very long and rambling and had strange moments with my cat. But the first four minutes is me complaining about cinephiles at the Cinerama Dome has, <laughs> because there were these guys. I saw the video, and I, I love- remember this distinctly. There were these guys talking about the Golden Globe nominations, and they were wrong about everything they said. Literally everything they said was wrong. It was horrible. Watching that video, I got really confused because I didn't, I didn't think it was an inherent vice recap <laughs> because all you were doing was complain. These guys, they, these assholes, just don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, it was rough. They, they like, they thought that um, I wrote it down. Whiplash was that guy's first movie. I'm already forgetting his name. Um, <laughs> Damien Chazelle's first movie, and I was like, okay, no. And then they couldn't remember Ava DuVernay's name, and they thought Selma was her first movie when it was her third movie. And I was like, I'm gonna punch both of you in the face. Like, just shut up. This but, is humanity you know, great. That's, that's a word season. You know, everyone thinks they know a lot. They don't know And anything. so, rocketing into the film, you were maybe not in the best mood, the best headspace, <laughs> yeah. the best environment. How did how did it treat you? I, how, what did you think I, first time through? I loved it. Mm-hmm. I um, hadn't read the book, but I've read so many crime novels at that point, that, mm-hmm. um, especially the California crime novels um, of, like, Chandler and Hammett and... Even like Dorothy B. Hughes's in a Lonely Place is a California noir mm-hmm. and um, very different from the movie, but great book. And so I really dug what they were doing with the California noir. But then also my parents grew up in the valley. Um, they're about maybe 15 years older than than um, no more than 15 years older. Let's see, 20 years older than PTA, but like grew up in the same area as him. Especially my dad. My dad grew up in Reseda, and I feel like. Doc's character would be my dad if my dad wasn't an archaeologist. Like, they were very similar. Your dad's an archaeologist? My dad's an archaeologist, yes. He's retired now, but he was an archaeologist, and he he um, started out in the—he was born in 1950, so he, he was, you know, in his mid-20s when the height of, like, dropout culture was still mm-hmm. happening and into the 70s, like, you know, rock— scene and he grew up in the valley and he lived in the valley his whole life and my mom grew up even further in the valley in the antelope valley and she was definitely a hippie she's done every drug that has ever hope she's not listening but she has done every drug that ever existed you think your mom would want to come on the show um (laughs) maybe i don't know that she's seen this movie Uh oh but um she definitely like lived the scene (laughs) they have a lot of very strange stories about like 60s rock concerts and like things that they saw where they played in tiny little venues before they Mm. blew up well question there's a lot of people who now love this movie Mm -hmm. but i think that's that's a that that's a minority of film goers that actually really love this movie but even among those there is a sub minority of people and that would include you and myself who walked out of the theater the first time loving the movie and that's not really something I've asked people about a lot, and I should. And I'm going to start with you by saying, why do you think this hit you the way it did the first time out? Why did it not require the three visit, the three mm-hmm. reviews on revisitations on Blu-ray before you were finally like, oh, I get it. It's about love and loss. I think because I had read so many crime novels that, especially some of the early Chandlers, that you 
like as Chandler was writing them, he lost himself in his characters and in his worlds, and they don't make a lot of sense. And mm-hmm. you know, he did a lot of interviews where he's like, "I don't know, just just read it; it's fine." You know, um, you just you just go with the story and go where the story takes you and where the characters take you, and don't expect lo- a lot of logic. Yeah. Um, and it will wrap up in a nice place. <laughs> and I felt like that's what this movie did, and I didn't need it to make a ton of sense, and I didn't need every thread to you know like go all the way through to the end. Like it was. I liked all the characters. Um, and at this point, I had seen, I still have seen every one of PTA's movies. So I was a big fan of his work just in general mm-hmm. going in. So he can pretty much do anything, and I'll, I'll probably like it because I think his point of view on humanity really aligns with mine because um, I don't think he ever really judges his characters. He just gives you an array of the human experience, whether they're terrible people or good exactly. people or somewhere in the middle. And... This movie is a great, you know, showcase for that trait. Moreover, don't you think I was in a prior episode, I was talking to crime novelist Jordan Harper, and he is not as crazy about I got I got I got to stop really quick. It's really weird to see someone eat a chocolate covered <laughs> banana while we're talking. Is this how it's been for you every yeah. time you've been talking and I've just been you know? like Chewing and sucking and munching on this. It's the scene. This is really weird. This is weird. (laughs) This is weird, right? I will. I will say for listeners, it's not as awkwardly sexual as the scene (laughs) in the movie. No, it's just weird. It's just weird. It's It's just weird. It's like as I'm talking and you slowly just raise the banana to your mouth and take a bite (laughs) and look at me. It's odd. It's It's, really odd. It's a weird shaped food. It kind of looks almost like a corn dog. It does. It looks like a really weird. Well, yeah, like a bent corn dog. Kinda. Yeah. Well, we just, we're just not going to make eye contact for the rest of the show, okay? I think just that look might, at the banana. That might, well, that, that's making it weird for me, too. Um, <laughs> but going back to it, I was speaking to crime novelist Jordan Harper about this, and one of the things that he said is he feels very alienated by PTA's movies because he says he can't understand the perspective and can't see really what the POV of these films is, the emotional POV. And uh, in the first time that I yelled at one of my my guests i just shouted it's about love baby and that's to me that's what pta's movies are they're all about love whether yeah. it's sydney or what if you want to call it hard eight, hard eight or boogie nights or magnolia punch drunk even uh there will be blood to me it's about daniel and his little boy mm-hmm. uh the master my god <laughs> there's a you know not to be crass send the kids out of the room that's just a movie where you just want to go to the two main characters and go guys just fuck just yeah. just get it over with it. yeah it, it, You'll feel so much better, uh, and then obviously uh, Phantom Thread, but especially in Hair of Ice, these are it's just about love, and it's about it's about how we love the people that I think we discover in adulthood, mm-hmm. the second families that we make, and how we love. Yeah, them. Yeah, and I think most of his movies really are about that level of connection and human connection, and how you connect to all kinds of different people in different ways. Oh no! You've stopped talking when I have banana in my mouth. <laughs> no, this episode's um, going to be a. This I was going to say. I was going to say also anima. If we're talking about that's PTA true. things about that's love, true. like that's anima true. is the most romantic thing I've seen all year. So that's true. It is amazing. Now, you say that you, when you first saw the film, you hadn't read the book. I don't think you'd read any. I still haven't read. Oh, you, so you, so you yeah, still haven't. Yeah, I actually looked. have the book, but this is a weird story. So I didn't buy it. I had. 
not quite a stalker, but kind of an internet stalker. And they used to send me things from my Amazon wish list, like unprompted. And it was a bit creepy. And then they would send me weird messages like, did you get my gifts? And I'm like, can you leave me alone? And so one of the <laughs> one of the gifts was Inherent Vice. And so I haven't read it yet because every time I look at the book, I'm like, oh, remember that time that guy like sent me stuff and then oh, no. sent me weird messages and I had to block him? So. Ooh. Yeah. So is this super weird that there's literally a copy of <laughs> well, the book on the not, desk right now? That's a lovely hardback edition. It's not the creepy one that someone sent me from okay. Amazon wish list. All right. So I was gonna say this episode's getting weirder and weirder with every. You time. know, th- that's what happens when you have internet people on your show. Internet people are weird. That's true. Well, you are an eccentric. We <laughs> talked about this. <laughs> yes. You are an you are a natural eccentric. I am. So I'm gonna admit something. I, every episode, I come in with pages and pages and pages of notes and, and theories and really pretentious stuff. But with this chunk of film, I really want to fly blind. Okay. And I, 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 don't, I wouldn't even know how to make notes about something like this because this is just such a strange left field moment. And there are, well, there are two moments in this scene. We're going we're gonna to see the introduction, and we shouldn't give him short shrift, of Sancho Smilex, you know. Benicio del take me now dot <laughs> tumblr dot com. But the this this sequence really hinges on Bigfoot Bjornson longingly, lasciviously filleting this banana. This banana. Mm-hmm. This banana in our very hands. The part of the reason I requested this scene is it's it's one of the moments in cinema from the last decade that has stayed with me the longest because <laughs> I love I actually love chocolate covered bananas. I <laughs> usually keep them in my fridge. Um, this exact brand that we are eating is the brand of chocolate covered banana that I often buy. And when that was in the movie, I was like, "Did they put this in for me? Like, <laughs> is this here for me? Does he know I like bananas? Does he also like chocolate covered bananas? Is it in the book? Because I haven't read the book. Is it in the book? It is That's in amazing. the book." It is far less, <laughs> far less depressingly sexual. Okay. But it is in the book. I believe that in the book there's even a sequence where on Bigfoot's particular floor of the glass house in Robbery Homicide, he has requisitioned one of those morgue drawers that hold bodies in the morgue to store all of his frozen banana treats right there oh, by wow. his desk, which is sadly not in the film. But, uh, yeah, no, it's in the film. There is, n- or excuse me, that's in the book. There is nothing, though, in the book like the silent, wordless majesty of him <laughs> gagging on a that's, frozen chocolate that's banana. A great, that's a great moment because he just, he just got too far into the banana. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Okay. And and what really makes it like it's the combo cuz there's the the how good um Josh Brolin is just comically Fearless. comically flaming Fearless. a banana but also um Joaquin Phoenix just watching him like the look on his face and I I said this in my original review of the movie the bulk of of the performance for me that works for Joaquin is his reactions to everything. Yes. If he if he wasn't such a good emoter through his face, I don't think the movie would would work nearly as well. And he's an extraordinarily adept, reactive mm-hmm. actor in that this is one of those movies where the lead character is in every single scene. And so he's constantly being asked by the film to react yeah. to the strangeness around him and to to meet it. 
And one of my favorite moments of his performance is the one that I think it's a, it's a moment that is very underrated for Joaquin, and that is the evolution of horror on his face as he realizes what's happening in the driver's seat next yeah. to him as Bigfoot returns him to his car. Um, and I love how, too, that's a scene, like, so much of Inherent Vice, weirdly enough, this is a scene that works on so many different levels once you've watched it more than once. Yeah. Because the first time you see this, you're like, well, is this is, like, this is some naked gun shit. Like, this is just some weird Leslie Nielsen stuff. Like, okay, it's a joke. Like, maybe he likes dick. I don't know. <laughs> but, like, ha, ha, ha. And it's not until you see it once or twice or three or 14 times, depending on how the film strikes you, that you realize that this is just yet another moment of Inherent Vice working on so many different levels and that in true pension fashion, it is wedging in this really kind of heartbroken nostalgia for, for someone who's been lost, mm-hmm. and it's just working it into a dick joke, yeah, which is pure pension. And isn't that amazing? That's great. It's the right kind of humor. you got to have like the high and the low combined. Exactly. And you know what? I say we take a moment, we're going to keep munching on these bananas, <laughs> and let's watch this scene together. Although, wow. oh, that was a big bite. <laughs> that was a big one. Doesn't that hurt your teeth? And I also got to say, a little bit. Um, just for people at home, like I don't want to... You know, I don't want to send the stocks crashing for this particular treat. This is kind of disgusting. What? This is kind of disgusting. No, I love it. Really? <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe, mm, yeah. It's... Do you normally like bananas? No. That's probably. I thought, though, the chocolate would save it for no, me. No, you got to like banana. It's mostly banana. Because it's so mushy on the inside. Folks, it's really mushy. It's very mushy. Yeah. It's a mushy banana covered in chocolate. That's the treat. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> well, and and also, is this? It's going to be weird to watch this scene while we're eating these. Yeah. I mean. But on that note, let's watch this moment. Okay. What the fuck? Hey, Sanj. What's up, Doc? You know you have no case here. So if you're going to charge him, you bet him. Otherwise, you have to let him go. Mm, Sanj, remember who this is you're talking to? That's Bigfoot Bonson, Renaissance cop. I know he is. So, what's the beef here exactly? It doesn't have much to do with your specialty, which I understand is marine law. We got plenty of crime on the high seas, Lieutenant. Okay, well, so far we have murder and kidnapping. We can work in pirates if it would make you more comfortable. Either way, it's high profile. Yeah, but um, given your history of harassment with my client, this will never make it to trial. No, I think we could probably take this all the way to trial, but with our luck, you know, the jury pool will be 99% hippie. Unless you change the venue to maybe like uh, Orange County, not as many hippies down there, you know? So who are you working for? Clients pay me for work, Doc. Clients pay me for work, Doc. So? I've decided I'm going to kick Mr. Splatoon. You know, kick him. That's assault. I think it's police slang, Sanch. It means cut me loose. I release a suspect at the impound garage. Promise? I promise.
Should I even should I even say what we were just talking about? <laughs> I mean, you you can. I think it's on brand for me. Well, we're back from the scene, and I suppose let's start with Benicio. Let's not to get him out of the way like he's a trifling thing. Yeah. But let's. I think we know where the meat of this episode is going to be, and and I will say by the way, I don't know if it's the scene. I don't know if I'm if it's if it's some weird thing. This is tastier now. I don't know if it's some Pavlovian scene, <laughs> Pavlovian thing, seeing Brolin do it, but it's, I'm warming up to it. Maybe the bottom of the banana is tastier. Mine is definitely more banana-y at the bottom. See, mine's ch- more chocolatey at the bottom. Hmm. These are the kind of hard-hitting conversations, conversations, excuse me, that you're going to get when you tune into something like uh, Increment Vice. And I say tune in like an old man, like this is a radio show. But that said, what did you just tell me <laughs> about your Benicio del Toro Wolfman post? Oh, I'm on... going to find the caption again again um, th- that would be on benicio del take me now dot tumblr. Dot com. Dot com. so i was trying to figure out what movie it was and it, it was the wolfman um and so i found a post where the caption and this is t- 2010 so um i was 24 years old so please just you know keep that in mind it says <laughs> benicio del you can go all wolfman on me any day that's what it says <laughs> this this is why you're on yeah. the show today this is this is the kind of this is the kind of thirsty content we need on Increment Vice. There hasn't been enough. That's my brand. There really hasn't been enough. That is my brand <laughs> on um, the internet. I also <laughs> I used to you know so Tumblr changed their rules last year. Oh yeah. You couldn't have full frontal, and for ten years I've been documenting full frontal male nudity in movies and TV on my Tumblr <laughs> under the hashtag dicks. Like that's just the hashtag, and I I had to save all of my screenshots to a folder. So now I have a folder on my desktop that says Tumblr Dicks. That's the name of it. And now every time I watch a movie or TV show and there's full frontal, I have to just save it to the folder. I can't share it anywhere. And it's like, I mean, I guess maybe I could put it on WordPress, but um, at one point I had ads on my WordPress and they said my WordPress was not ad, like it was there too much, you know, whatever. So the point is that I can't, I gotta say. I can't put them anywhere. Despite not being about inherent vice at all, this is the most inherent vice conversation <laughs> I think I've ever had on the show. Which is good. Tumblr dicks. You're welcome, audience. You know, they're gone now, but they were there. <laughs> Let's start with Benicio. Uh, I gotta say, this is a this is a very very funny film. It might not be the Zucker Brothers comedy that maybe the trailer made it appear to be and i think that's one of the reasons some people were disappointed yeah starting off that this wasn't just a naked gun or airplane film i gotta say pound for pound the introduction of sancho smilex might be the most consistently funny stretch of the entire film he's so funny you're gonna kick him like because yeah. <laughs> he's just you know he's taking everything so literally it's it's hilarious and mugging shouldn't work mugging mm-hmm. should not work in a 2014 movie the level of capital M mug that he gives us yeah. in this film, in this scene, because the remainder of his scenes aren't super hilarious, but this beat, it's like, it's just like punch after punch to the head. Like I'm dizzy after watching. He's so funny. Clients pay me for work, doc. Clients pay me for work, doc. <laughs> when he just in- enters the scene and he's like, what's up, doc? And he just says it. You're like... But there's just this dazed so look good. on his face. There's something about his face. Like, he's not there. He's vibrating on an entirely different atomic frequency yeah. than Bigfoot or uh, Doc. And 
you know, he he has no idea what's going on. And that's actually that's exactly what his character is also like in the book. Okay. That he is just on a totally different level because he's he's usually stoned in a completely different way than Doc is. But yeah, he just comes in, and I, I think you can attribute that to the power of PTA that an actor of Del Toro's caliber is willing to show up and make a fool of himself for about seven or eight minutes in a movie, and then he's out. That's yeah. how we see him. But let me ask you this: This is, I guess, this isn't. Is this a is this a thirst generating performance? I think so, and I think that's because his his hair. Is it the pompadour? That when the, later the on, hair. when they're at the diner by the beach, it's oh. the it's the, it's the yeah. he's got one of the all time great like heads of hair. Mm-hmm. It's always looked good, but as he's gotten grayer, I think I said this earlier. I'm not sure. As it's gotten grayer and silver foxy, it's gotten better because it's like something about that like dark black hair that turns gray that is just it's a good look. And he gonna, wears it really well. I'm going to say with a mouthful of banana here, this is legit the horniest episode of Increment Vice we've ever had. <laughs> I, I'm I'm glad I could set that bar, <laughs> you know? Um, That's what I'm here for. Isn't it kind of interesting, though? Is this, is this a weird kind of typecasting in that this is the second time Benicio Del Toro has played a stoned and addled attorney you know? for a stoned and addled client as they try to unravel a mystery it seems to be tied to the foundations of the American dream itself. My favorite end scene of a character ever is in Fear and Loathing, where he's just on, getting on the plane, doing the hands, and it's like... There he goes. One of God's own prototypes. A high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live, and too rare to die. And I think I think it's um, I think the casting is probably a nod to that casting. Mm-hmm. It would be weird if it, if like PTA hadn't seen just, ra- just randomly hadn't hate. seen it, right? But I I think it's an it's a really great tribute to how funny he is when you give him comedy. Yeah, that he can really nail both those, especially opposite to really like powerhouse actors who have done a lot of comedy. Yeah, because Joaquin and well. Actually, I guess Joaquin and Johnny Depp are, you know, those actors that are always doing, like, chameleons are always doing something different. And, you know, to some extent, Johnny Depp has kind of <laughs> stopped doing that. But he used to, you know, like, when he was great, he was so yeah. great. And Benicio can come in and just out-funny them without even trying. And what's remarkable about this scene is before you've seen this film— if someone was to, or before I had seen the film, if someone was to tell me, by the way, the hardest you're going to laugh in a theater all year is a three-way face-off between a cop, a detective, and an attorney played by Josh Brolin, Joaquin Phoenix, and Benicio Del Toro. Three men who, while they are incredible performers, yeah. at least in 2014, I was not exactly categorizing in my brain's file cabinet as laugh riots yeah and somehow these three men who i think are very known for stony terrifying uh haunting dramatic performances the, 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 the three of them together is like nuclear fission they are the funniest part of this film it's putting these three very very serious sa serious actors together in a room and just letting them make dick and fart jokes yeah how does it, that work? It works. I don't know. This I remember this being probably my favorite experience in the theaters when I saw it that year because mm-hmm. it is so funny 
from start to finish. And somehow, I don't know how, it's hard to maintain like this kind of humor for two and a half hours, (laughs) but it's, it's because each, each situation is so uniquely funny. And then he lets the actors breathe. Mm-hmm. Which is really important. Like, there's two different ways to do humor. I think there's the highly timed humor, like slapstick comedy. That's, you know, they is really, really tightly timed. Mm-hmm. And then there's this kind of languid, you know, just go, um, comedy. And I think, I think it shows a lot of uh, PTA's trust in these actors that he was just like, just go, and do it. One of the most, I think, undiscussed. And I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm going to throw it out there. The most undiscussed elements of what makes him such a great director is his level of trust in his actors. So much of what makes this film special in doing the ludicrous amount of research I've done for doing a ludicrous show about it here Vice <laughs> is how many of my favorite parts of this, they weren't in the shooting script, they weren't in any script, it was the actor who came to PTA and said, I want to do this. Can we just see what happens? The And I've mentioned this before on the show, the famous final scene of Bigfoot's where he eats the plate load of pot. It wasn't in the script. He's just supposed to steal, he's supposed to steal Doc's joint, smoke it, leave. And Brolin, given the general tenor of the film, film, which he described as absolute fucking chaos, the making of, he just, he pulled PTA aside and he said, it's not enough. I can't just take a toke and leave like that's that's it that's the that's the end of my character like yeah and he kept pushing for something more operatic he went in in the next take he ate the joint and then finally he said i just need to swallow a plate load of pot like i have to absorb doc (laughs) but that's that 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 incredibly memorable scene is not in the book it's not in the script this is this is brolin bringing that and brolin inventing that and in fact i think most the most actor invented again i don't even it's a gibberish phrase that i'm making here <laughs> the most actor generated i think innovations in this film were mostly brought by by brolin mm-hmm. because apparently in pta's script which he he adapted by putting the book in one of those cookbook holders that can hold the hold a book open okay he put that on his desk and literally adapted the book page by page oh interesting because he said that was the only way he could see the film is to make the whole book and script and then that would allow him to see what he needed to Rubik's Cube into the final film and in doing so something got lost in translation and he started cutting huge swaths of Bigfoot's character out to the point where the character was basically a monotonous foil to to Doc just there to make Doc's life difficult and a quote from Brolin about this was that Paul had stripped away a lot of the color of the character from the book because obviously he's thinking of the tone of the film. He's thinking of the other characters. I don't really have to think that way. It's an interesting idea to have this kind of desaturated character come in and differentiate himself from everyone else. But I didn't particularly agree. So I was like, why don't we resaturate him? Once we started doing that, we started having so much fun together, bringing back what was in the book. Once we got on set... Then we just fucking started pouring all kinds of day glow paint on it. And it just became, it made sense. It's not like I read the script and thought, I know how to play that guy. That never happens, ever. Instead, you go through a massive torture that I don't wish on anyone. It just has to do with creating anything. 
I have to present this character to people as if it works. And I think almost everyone else is on the page Mm -hmm. in this film, on the page of the script. Brolin basically accepted the character, I think, I suspect because PTA thinks he just looks a lot like Ralph Meeker. And this feels like a very Ralph Meeker role. Yeah. There's only one other man that can play this role, and it's Ralph Meeker. And basically, slowly but surely worked on PTA until he was able to make this character operatically humongous again. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anyone else in the film had to do that. And I think that's part of the magic of Bigfoot is how hard Brolin fought to make him ridiculous. Yeah, and... Like, just ridiculous enough to be great and not ridiculous enough to be out of tune with the rest of the characters. No, and in fact, I would say he he is so in tune with the film that Bigfoot, to me, is the film. I think he's the code key that unlocks the whole film. One of the things that I endlessly go on and on and on and on and on about, about the, on this show is this movie... This has nothing to do with mystery and the American dream and the death of the 60s. The death of the 60s is just a metaphor for losing something that you love. Mm -hmm. And to me, what this film is about is how do you do that? How do you lose something that you love? How do you you handle that? If Magnolia asks us, what can we forgive? This film asks us, what can we live without? Mm -hmm. And no character in this film, from Hope Harlingen missing her supposedly dead husband to Tariq Khalil missing his entire neighborhood to Doc missing his ex-old lady, no one is hurting and longing as much as Bigfoot Bjornsson for a decade that is now a decade gone. Yeah. The 50s are 10 years gone now, and the the person, the his, his at least his partner vis-a-vis the LAPD, but perhaps partner in a far deeper way, mm-hmm. Vincent Indelicato is gone forever, who's never coming back, unlike some, Hope Arlingen's husband, or unlike Shasta Fay, who does come back, Bigfoot is a man who has lost everything. And for a movie that, to me, is about nothing but loss, he is the walking, talking avatar for this movie, right? Yeah. Like, he's the big funhouse mirror version of this film. And that just kills me. And I think that's so... That's not, that's not something I think that we can credit PTA with directly. I think it's... We can, to circle back to where this began... His trust in his actors, that mm-hmm. he trusted Brolin to say, look, I'm not just doing this because I want more screen time. There's something more to this character. There's a reason why Pension had this character a certain way. It's because he is the story. His pain is the film's pain. And even when that comes to using that pain to wantonly fillet a banana, it's there, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's there. Bless his heart, Bigfoot. Bless his heart, Brolin. I am going to, for everyone listening at home, I got to put this banana away. It's just not working out for me. I finished my banana. I got, I got down to the very, well, now I'm going to feel insecure. I got down to the very, all right, fuck it. I'll finish it. I'm going to finish it. You eat the whole banana. I'm going to eat it. It I'm was gonna... not even as long as the one that Brolin ate. That's true. That's true. That was a very skinny, but, like, frozen banana. Well, that was also, I get the feeling, not Bigfoot's first time. Yeah. This is my first. This I've never your, done this yeah. before. You know, baby steps. Speaking of which. Uh, little side note. Brolin, in that scene, for the take for the the amount of takes that they did, is quoted as saying that they he clocked forty four bananas in one day that day that he had to eat wow. forty four bananas. I don't know if that's did he actually possible. eat them or did he use like a spit? 
interesting. He didn't clarify. He mm. just said he went through 44 bananas. That's that's like that would kill a grown man, right? That would you would be in the restroom a lot. Yeah. Oof. Like your bowels definitely or well, not bowels, intestines, whatever, very clean. Colon? You remember? I think it's your colon. I don't know. Remember before we started recording, I told you there's a moment in every episode <laughs> where I go, "Boy, we sure have gone far afield from the scene at hand." When you got to colon talk <laughs> is where I think we lost it. You know, the bananas keep you regular. That's <laughs> that's just a fact. Again. This is the kind of thing you can learn when you listen I to Increment Vice. I also read that ban- a, supposedly a banana has the same caloric energy as a cup of coffee. So 44 bananas, not counting the sugar and the chocolate, he had the caloric energy of 44 cups of coffee that day. Jesus. That's... Did he sleep? I have a lot of follow-up questions. He did say that all the syrup from the banana from the the pancakes made him sick from the sugar high. Oh no! Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. But I want to go back to something uh, a little bit more broad in the inherent vice universe, which is you're a noir person, yes. obviously. Yes. You are the creator of my favorite time of year. It's my favorite time of year as well. November. So good. It just had its tenth anniversary. It did. This year. It did. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, November is a celebration of all things noir. And guess what month? November. And if you're on Twitter, you hashtag it. You talk about what you're watching. You see what other people are watching. Mm-hmm. You learn about all sorts of noir films you never saw before. You share your favorites, listen to your favorite noir soundtracks. It's a lot of fun. You can read books. It's almost as nerdy as having a podcast Some people dedicated do photo- to a movie. Photography. It's crazy. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And I wanted to talk to you about something. And we believe me, we're going to come back to Bigfoot. Uh, but I wanted to know how you feel about Inherent Vice as a noir film. Do you see it as oh, a noir film? Oh, 100%. So the um, BAM Cinematheque in Brooklyn did this great um, mini festival during the release called Sunshine Noir, which was all like mm-hmm. L.A. noir, but specifically the like neo-noir era of L.A. noir. And I think it fits so beautifully into that. I think I wish I could have gone to that retrospect. Like I wish I lived in New York for that month so I could just watch all those movies. But it's it's. Um, I think Sunshine Noir, as they were sort of making the argument as existing, really does exist. And I think PTA has already done two films in that genre because I think Hard Eight you could or see what's the other name for it? Sydney. Sydney. I almost said Seymour. Um, I think both. <laughs> I think I think Hard Eight also feels like a sunshine noir although it, i think that's set in nevada yes yeah but i think they both fit in and i think him growing up in the valley it's no surprise that he made two sunshine noir mm-hmm. films um because the valley is a very weird place and um where was i going with this argument oh god it's gone um but basically you, had Which like, is a, <laughs> you know what you are not the first cast to do that and that is a very appropriately <laughs> inherent vice thing to f- a place to find yourself at where you start a sentence it's really great starts to become a little labyrinthian and then you end up having no clue like, where the where fuck you I are start? but we were you were the talking about sunshine the bam noir. sunshine noir series yeah and and i think that you can see a ton of these films especially in the 70s mm-hmm. at late 60s into the 70s which so making a neo noir in the 2010s that's really a neo neo noir from these neo noirs from the 70s mm-hmm. is like super like brilliant um one of my favorites in this in this genre is um god why am i forgetting everything the one with elliot gould it's gone the long goodbye thank you the long goodbye you are talking to a man who has a long goodbye tattoo and your avatar is me you know so that's like the that's one of my favorite 
Chandler adaptations mm-hmm. because I like the way they update it to feel 70s and to take that character and make him feel like what would what would um, Marlowe in the 70s be? Which is just morally exhausted. Yeah. Although I will say that I don't think there's ever been a perfect person playing Marlowe because I don't think any director has ever captured his essence properly. I would... I would I I love the long goodbye. I swear by the long goodbye, but mm-hmm. I don't disagree. Yeah, there has never been a Chandler perfect Marlowe. Yeah. on the screen. And you know, the real bummer is another one of these Sunshine Noirs is Marlowe. The um, the the, the Warren Oates movie. No, yeah, that, that's Chandler. No, that's Chandler. Um, Chandler's not terrible. Marlowe. The it's the adaptation of the Little Sister. And it has like Rita Moreno and Bruce Lee and um, oh, uh, with James Garner. James Garner. It's not a great adaptation. But he's a good Marlowe. Um, he's like close. He's getting closer. He looks like what Marlowe should look like. Yeah, and um, I wish they did a great adaptation of The Little Sister because that I think that is his like most depraved novel, and I it think is. it would make a great adaptation yeah. now because you could do all because you the, could make it now. You could do all the gross things that yeah. are in the book. But another great one is. Um, Going into when did Inherent Vice when that was written in the late nineties mid nineties Oh no 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 Inherent Vice uh, that was uh, that was the two thousands two thousands Okay so slightly earlier than that you had um, all of the Easy Rollins books mm, and yeah, yeah, yeah and Devil in a Blue Dress is a great sunshine sunshine noir movie. but set in the forties mm. and I just I think it, it is a real subset of noir and neo noir. Well, this is, this is actually a good time to talk about Sunshine Noir because this is actually a very sunny scene. Yes. So we can work that in. Um, well, first off, do you remember the other movies in that BAM series? Oh, Tell wish. Me Cutter's Way. Tell I Me think, Cutter's Way. Was I think it might have been. Okay. Yeah, that one's so good. That. That's a no, great That's a great title. No offense to the movie that I'm doing a show about, but Cutter's Way is my favorite Sunshine Noir. It's, uh, it's, it's good. It's, it's perfect, even though it's the most extraordinarily depressing film I've ever seen yes. in my entire life. Um, and I also don't know why I whispered that, and it's very creepy. Because <laughs> the book was right there, and you didn't want to insult uh, it. I, don't I know. mean, you never—we have no idea where Thomas Pynchon is. He could be here. Um, why? What is it about the Sunshine Noir? Why does that resonate in a different way? Do you think? Is it just because of the aesthetic difference? Everything's blasted yellow and white. Yeah, I think, and, and this happens every noir member where there's a lot of purists who are like, Ugh, if it's color, it's not noir, or if there's too much light, it's not noir, and it's like, yes and no, mm-hmm. in that, you know, the original era, for the most part, were these dark urban settings, except for, like, um, The Hitchhiker, which if you're going to say that's not noir, I'm going to, like, punch you in the face, and that is a desert noir, Boy, you know? So, you know, I like to threaten to punch people in the face. I've only ever punched two people. And it was in the stomach, not the face. And did they, they have it coming? N- they both did. Okay. Um, one was successful. One was not successful. Um, <laughs> but um, the Sunshine Noirs, I will argue, I will always argue that they're still noir because, in my opinion, you have the era from which this all sprung from, mm-hmm. but that that era was capturing a mood and kind of a world um, perspective. And I think these other, all the films that came out of it still have that mood and world perspective regardless of when they're made and so they couldn't be they can be bright colored and you still have that that dark like undertone to it mm-hmm. and worldview that that's always my argument I see that I agree with that I don't disagree at all I would also say just because I gotta go throw it out there 
After Dark, My Sweet. That's another good one. That's Everyone a, should watch that. That's a good one. That's one of the best um, adaptations of, I'm forgetting the author's name. It's gone. Jim Thompson. Thank and again, you. I promise we're sober. The I best, promise we're just best, forgetful today. That one's my like the second best Jim Thompson. I think I think the best Jim Thompson is Sari Noir. Mm, have you seen that? I have. You don't think that's the best one? Uh well, I don't want to get punched okay. in the face. I in won't my own punch show. you in the face. I brought you I god damn it. I, I brought ate you a it. banana. It was good. Um but no, after Dark I, My Sweet. I, I would I have to go after Dark My Sweet is my favorite like, Jim Thompson. I think it's the most successful and most Thompson tone accurate hmm. novel See, I or think, adaptation I think of one of his novels. Noir is because of how frenetic the performance is. Sure. Sure. So that's my argument. Are there. we having a fight now? We is might. It, or, or we we're might, totally in a fight. We might be. Oh, Jesus. If but, I get it, I'll, I'll give you up. When, when, when I walk you out, I'm going to give you another banana. Okay. All right. Let's make this right. I have to have 44. Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, there's eight <laughs> per box. Um, you do the math on that and I'll make a, I'll make a Ralph's order. Um, I want to go back to Bigfoot. Because we are, we're just like knee deep in a series of episodes about Big, Bigfoot right now, and uh, again, he's so fascinating to me because Doc is the is the main character, and Shasta is by far maybe the most mysterious character. Yeah, and Sanch is the funniest character, and there's you could go on and on how everyone is this and everyone is that. There's something about Bigfoot. I get that he's a he's a comic figure and he's a figure of fun. We can kind of laugh at him. Isn't he like just the most fucking tragic part of this film? Isn't there something so heartbreaking about him and hypocritical about him? Because he's this man who's a part of the very cultural force that that murdered the thing that he loves. Yeah. And he will do next to nothing about it he's going to outsource his he's so he's so neutered that he's the film the the real story of this movie the actual plot story of this movie aside from aside from the booby house snatch of mickey wolfman is simply long stretches of uh, bigfoot laying down track to outsource his vengeance to doc that's that's the whole movie Mm -hmm. is doc running in circles not realizing the Bigfoot's pushing him in those circles to essentially just kill two guys that murdered his partner. Yeah, that the LAPD sanctioned. And what I wanted to, what I wanted to ask you about is when you left the film the first time, you're very happy. You're one of those wonderful rare people that you walk out of the theater with any day now, blasting from the theaters. You're smiling. Oh my god, that was an amazing film. Did you? recognize the complexity of this character the first time out or was it for you the first time out just like well he was funny wow Brolin was just nuts honestly probably the latter I think um, in terms of like the richness of characters I think I focused the most on Doc Mm -hmm. because obviously he's in every scene and you get a little bit more of on the surface level more of his transformation not that he transforms too much but his like going from being in the shadows on what's happening to Mm -hmm. being in the know um, in the other characters, you sort of have to watch it a few times to see the subtleties in their character development. He's definitely one that I think the first time I watched it, I was just like, this is so bizarre and not expected from the actor. Mm-hmm. And then it was, you have to rewatch it to really see the like nuanced emotions. I kind of feel like the more I watch it, and my God, I've watched it so many times right now. Like I, I, I should be in like the DSM five. As there should be a category for what I have, my obsession with this film. More and more, 
I know that this is Doc's movie, and I would sound like an asshole go if I say something pretentious, like it's truly Bigfoot's movie. Yeah. But it's kind of Bigfoot's movie. The movie doesn't exist if Bigfoot's not making move the moves that he this is. This is true. The, I would agree with that. Half of the connections that lead that lead Doc to to the climax and back to the car ride with Shasta are because of tracks that Bigfoot puts in place. And what I think is fascinating, and I said this on the last episode, and I'm curious your thoughts about this. What is so interesting about Inherent Vice in general and Bigfoot in specific is there is a whole sub-movie happening beneath this movie that we don't see. I think a lot of films, when a character's not on screen, they don't exist. They yeah. just, movies can be very solipsistic in that way. When the character's off screen, they just stop. And the things that are happening off screen with them now, they're not really affecting us and they're not affecting the plot. But what I think about was so fascinating is every time Bigfoot is off screen, Bigfoot is doing things that are affecting Doc directly. Mm-hmm. We just don't see those connections. But I think what's what's cool about that, and it's it's something I don't know if I've ever actually seen before, is, and as I said, I mentioned this last time, he is a loser cop in that Shane Black mode mm-hmm. of he's watched the world slip through his fingers and he's just desperately angling to be a part of something meaningful again. And all of those characters always get a case yeah. that allows them to springboard themselves into redemption. But what's fascinating about Bigfoot, and I don't know if I've seen a story like this, is he's a detective that never gets the case that redeems him. Yeah. You know, there's a great moment which is both funny and sad where he's at the pancake house just shaking his head, no Cielo Drive for Bigfoot. Like, he doesn't get that. And have you ever encountered a detective story like that before where literally you can only do it with a sub-character because if it's your main character, then you have no plot whatsoever. It's just a detective sitting around not doing anything. But he's a detective who can't be redeemed by his very nature. He's never going to catch the case, the case that's going to make his life. Interestingly enough, one of the films or one of the books that this film kind of reminded me of and his character in particular is the actual book version of In a Lonely Place. Which right. is very different from the film. There, mm-hmm. he, there's no screenwriter. Um, spoilers. <laughs> Dixon Steele is a murderer in mm-hmm. it because the book is actually about PTSD um, and how we turn men into killers. And then when they get back from war, we don't turn that off in them. Yeah. Um, and the and misogyny. And in the in the book, the detective is the one trying to solve the case, but he doesn't. He he doesn't listen to the women in his life. Mm-hmm. And his wife and the character that's played by Gloria Graham in the movie, they're the ones that solve the case and um, save each other because women listen to women. And that kind of reminded me, like, his sort of inability to, like, really, truly solve this case because he he's just not listening to the main people he needs to listen to um, reminded me a bit of this character, except that, obviously, in, in the film, he is the one setting all of the traps so he's not really trying to solve the case but um he's also like a beach cop so there's a lot of similarities (laughs) that's true in in the two stories and it almost makes me feel like the character in in a lonely place like is bigfoot like bigfoot is him you know 10 years later it's kind of what it feels like, or twenty, tw- almost twenty I years later. I can see that. I can yeah. see that. And then on the last episode, we hypothesized. I don't know if you've ever seen Hal Ashby's Eight Million Ways to Die. Mm-mm. Oh well, this won't be nearly as funny to you, but uh, it probably wouldn't be funny to anyone except for a big nerd like me. But there, Hal Ashby's Eight Million Ways to Die is a story about an alcoholic uh, cop who's been burned by the LAP or by the uh, 
yeah, the LAPD so much that he quits the force, becomes a PI, and has a frozen pastry face-off, or oh. fo- frozen snack face-off, rather, with Andy Garcia, where uh, Jeff Bridges and Andy Garcia basically taunt each other with how much they're going to kill each other while munching on pink snow cones. When was this made? Oh, uh, 80, 81, maybe? Is It was Ash- 82, maybe. It's Ashby's last movie. This Studio- is like Studio. really young Andy Garcia? Uh, baby Andy, ponytailed oh, Andy. Oh my god! Uh oh! <laughs> yeah, activated. Friends, something's happening across from the uh, across I, from I the, love the, Andy the board Gar- here. Like young Andy Garcia, yes. Well, imagine then. Oh god! But that's like ten years we're, younger than Godfather Three. We're like... going so far away from the episode again. But yes, <laughs> there is a scene where ponytailed Andy Garcia, who's playing a drug lord, is munching on a pink snow cone. And as is Jeff Bridges, who's the PI, and they're both fighting for the soul of Rosanna Arquette. Oh, I need to see this who is movie the, immediately. The woman they both love. And you can tell that this there's no script mm-hmm. and Ashby just told them to improv. It sounds amazing. And it's these two grown ass men improving while eating a snow cone at each other. So like they're each eating snow cones really aggressively, like, this is how bad I'm gonna fuck you up. <laughs> Look at the it takes a big bite of the snow cones. Like, you like that? You like that? Huh? You like it's really weird, kind of oddly erotic in a way, mm-hmm. like very two dudes who don't like, again, the master thing where you're kind of like, just fuck, just <laughs> guys, just put the snook, stop. So since we've mentioned two Jeff Bridges movies, we have. I have to mention my Jeff Bridges connection. So I mentioned my father grew up in the valley. Mm-hmm. So his parents also lived in the valley. It's my great, no, yeah, his mom, no, his Grandma, so my great grandmother mm-hmm. also lived in the valley. I remember like a deep California family, like five generations. You're on like a sides. PTA like, family over we've here. We've been here for a long time. So my great grandmother used to babysit Jeff and Bo Bridges. Jesus. As did my great aunt Zay. She like my great aunt Zay has the greatest stories about the valley in the 30s and 40s, and I've been getting all these stories from her. But she also would babysit these kids because they were. I think Jeff Bridges is the same age as my dad, and Bo's a little bit older. Um, and I'm like, but my dad does not ever remember playing with them, so I don't know if, if he ever got to meet them. Well, I got to say, that's interesting, but that's not what I thought this was going to be. <laughs> I was really expecting another Jeff Bridges thirst. Yeah. I was expecting well, a Jeff I mean, Bridges thirst story. I mean, there's that's there. I mean. Starman? Mm, He's very strange in that. I was definitely attracted to against him. Against all odds. In that movie. Against all odds. He's pretty hot in that, but yeah. I was really attracted to him in Starman as a youth. Wow. We, so. we, we could not be further from, from Inherent Vice. You know. Hey, he's in The Big Lebowski, and that's like that's like Inherent Vice. There that we go. Is, that There's is, our connection. That is basically, There's our way back. Yeah, There's 90s, our track back. Big Sleep. There's our track back. Speaking of The Big Sleep, this film... It, it's it's kind of... like I, I didn't think about this. Yeah. And we're going to go again. This is We're so off our goddamn scene. I had never thought about this until you mentioned it in your your video post mm-hmm. about which is a hypnotic post by the way. If anyone <laughs> yeah. If anyone wants to look up uh Mariah Gates Inherent Vice on YouTube. It goes, it goes it's like 14 minute long video. And boy, you're all like we, it's a tour of your apartment, it's a tour of your 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 hard-boiled crime crazy, book collection. Crazy crazy cat moments. There's some cats doing stuff. Like, you, have a, you have a really cool haircut. That's when I had the mohawk. Yeah. yeah. It was a re- but you bring up something that I hadn't thought of. It is this is this film is essentially it's the big sleep. Yeah, and the, 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 ending the ending. is Well, that's what I was gonna say. The straight. ending is the big sleep. It's it's yeah. Bogart and Bacall in the car. Just where are we going? Where are we going? Yeah, 
What are we going to do? And which also makes me think about how this is so, so, so one of those movies in which the mystery does not matter. No. Because you it's know, all about the characters. That and great the story. That great story, you know, where John Huston calls Chandler in the making of The Big Sleep to say, hey, who killed the chauffeur again? The first body that shows up that, you know, he pulls yeah. Marlowe in. And that long pause, and, and Chandler's like, shit, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Like, yeah, and if you've read the book, you're you know it's no it's it, you're it's like, not in the book. I'm not sure that I followed much, but I enjoyed the ride, which is the way I really felt about Inherent Vice. Is like mm-hmm. I don't even care if I can follow the whole thing if it's enjoyable the whole way. Like, can you do a speed round? Like, do you know who killed Glenn Sherlock? Oh come I am, on! I am shaking my head. Oh come on! No, uh, it's uh, it's Adrian and, and Puck because gets yeah. big because remember Doc gets hit with the oh bat. yes 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 gets hit with the bat. Just get out. It's just, gone. Just I've, get, I've failed. Get, get out. I failed. Out. I'll go and take all the bananas with me. Oh, yeah, which I paid for. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do. I, I want to come back. I want to come back one more time. I want to come back one more time to the trifecta of funny. Mm-hmm. Benicio, Brolin, and Phoenix. And... Is there is there a funnier moment? Is there a funnier beat in this? I film? don't I don't think so. I think this is the funniest section. Well, I okay, I gotta admit that something Spanish to me is the most laugh out loud moment in this film. But when when you when you were watching this, did you not feel the first time? Did you not mm-hmm. feel like like Max Katie in watching Problem Child in Cape in Scorsese's Cape Fear, uh, in that when he's just like hacking and laughing? Yeah, I was the only person in the theater laughing at this movie when I saw it, and everyone was so annoyed with me. No, I same same like the Cinerama Dome like was just well, like those jerks that didn't know who Ava DuVernay was. They weren't laughing. Like very few people were laughing. I feel like there's a couple of times in my life where I watched a movie and I knew I was in the wrong audience. Mm-hmm. This was one because I was the only one laughing or a handful of people laughing when I saw The Lobster and it was the only one laughing. And I was like, why are you not laughing? This is a comedy. Were there walkouts in your in your Vice screening? Um, I don't know. I had a lot of walkouts. Okay. There might have been. The dome is really big. So and who boy, knows? the the audience was palpably angry as we were filing out. Oh, they no. were like actually angry. That happened, um, not not a comedy, but when I saw um, I'm Not There, th- no one liked that movie except me. The, the people I went to, I was in a car full of people from college. We were driving back to my apartment and like they were all shitting on the movie and I was like, it's great. What are you talking about? No one, that was a packed screening. It was like during Thanksgiving when that came out, 2007. Yeah, something like that. Nobody liked it. And I was like, "What?" It's heartbreaking. It's rough when you are like, because I, I mean, and then they make you feel like you're the asshole because you like it, like you're pretentious for loving it. I mean, there's that. I definitely got that from some people, and I was like, "No, I just liked it." And the thing about films that I find like online discourse so annoying is that films oh, are subjective. Films are subjective, and like, there's a great um bit in Lynch on Lynch where he talks about how why he doesn't like to explain his movies because. When he made the movie, he put in what he put into the movie. And mm-hmm. then when you come to the movie, you bring yourself to that. And so it's a different experience for literally everyone who watches his art. And so why would he explain what he did? He already explained it. He made the movie. Mm-hmm. It's up to you for it to be whatever it is to you. And I feel that very deeply, which is why like when I do my end of the year list, I call it a favorite list because it's my favorite films, not necessarily the best films. I don't know what that means. I just know these are the ones that I that resonated with me. And I, it's always weird when... You're, when a movie doesn't resonate with a large amount of people, but it resonates with a handful of people, 
And especially when you're in an audience and you're like the person it works with for, yeah. and the rest of them just it just doesn't work for them. And it's like it's not no no one's right or wrong in that situation, but it's hard to be the one person feeling the opposite about the film. Yeah, well, I will say I don't. Oh God, I don't want to be internet guy. I'm not going to be internet guy. I was a little bit internet guy to Fran Hoffner on her episode. And Fran, again, I'm so, so sorry. I do love you so much. It was so great that you were on the show. I'm sorry that you heard that she hates Bigfoot. She hates Bigfoot. Oh. So I, I, I lost my cool. I broke into a sweat a little bit. Okay. But not to sound like reply guy. I will say I agree with everything you just said, except as it pertains to inherent vice. If people don't like inherent vice, <laughs> they're wrong. Okay. Well, no, I'll, I'll dial back. I get why people, some people don't like this movie. Uh, a former guest, Drew McWeeny, came on, though, and he said that he has had people fall out of the movie in the first eight minutes. Oh, wow. If you don't like that for those first eight minutes, I am done with you as a human being. Well, those first eight minutes are perfect. There's nothing to alienate you that's true for, in those for first every, eight minutes. That's true for every movie, though. Like, if the movie doesn't get you in the first eight to ten minutes, it's like, this movie's probably not going to be for you. But how do those eight minutes That I don't know, because this has one of the great openings. I've, I've said it before. Cool ass vitamin C rock and roll, uh, can vitamin C rock and roll song. Cool ass neon font. Mm -hmm. You've got uh, a really cool neo noir setup. You've got that great bizarre sortilege intro narration, which is not in the yeah. book. And regardless of how that can song is like one of the all time great seventies jams. And did you know this is not the first? This is not the first neo-noir to feature that song. Yeah. Sam Fuller did it yeah. in uh, Dead Pigeon on Beethoven Street. Yeah, and it's like when it was contemporary, too. Yeah, because he, he was making yeah. a German episode uh, of a police procedural that he turned into just a full-length movie, and he throws a can, uh, can's vitamin C in the beginning, same same way. But yeah, if you, how do you not like those first eight minutes? I don't, you know, there are I'm getting people, hot, I'm getting hot, I'm getting hot. I need a banana. There are people who don't, like this era of music i'm just dropping the, the, that <laughs> <But> <laughs> the look are. on your face the the, the 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 look of just like fuck it i'm done it just i don't i i love 70s music i'm not that this is a huge thing to say except that if you follow me on twitter you already know this i'm not the biggest fan of 70s cinema like there are ones that i love but mm. overall i'm like eh. 70s music <laughs> is like there's so much good music in the 70s and so many like genres that you know, developed out of all this new recording technology and just technology in general. It was a boom for genres in terms of music. And this this film, this film is like playing a Neil Young record. This yeah. film is a Neil Young yeah. record in that it's got that happy, sad, melancholy, but sweet vibe of just that feeling of almost when you kind of feel good about being depressed. That just that that blissfully, <laughs> yes. blissfully melancholic, like the first day when you feel a flu coming on mm -hmm. and you're not dead yet. You've just got that, oh, I just want to lay somewhere really hot and watch movies and not move. Th that's the Neil Young record vibe, and that's the Inherent Vice vibe yeah. to me anyway. And I wanted to ask, since as we as we start to wind this up and go get some more bananas, um, you mentioned that you know, you're know you doing, like, everyone everyone's doing the end of the year list, and now we're oh, doing yeah. the end of the decade list, and we're doing the end of the, the century so far list and all that. <sighs> And, yeah, I, I've made one, too. Even, I, I'm trying to sound like I'm so haughty and above it, and I'm literally looking at mine for Bright Wall Dark Room right now. Yeah. Does Inherent Vice fall into your best of the decade? Like, if you did a top ten, so, would it be in there? Be real, I, care, be when, real, be really I, careful. When I did my, my favorite 15, which is what I always do, uh, mm -hmm. of the year, this one made number ten. I actually, I actually looked it up because I thought – 
this might come up because um, I wanted to show like what was it was in between. Um, it was number ten between Only Lovers Left Alive and Ida. If that tells you, that's okay. Like my mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. taste in films, um, it probably wouldn't be in my end of the decade list because I did just do my end of the decade list. But I'm gonna double check what I put on it because I honestly can't remember. But I did tweet it. I am I hate lists, but I do them because you know you gotta do lists. Um, even if you hate them, it's part of it's a it's a cultural hysteria that you have to take a part it, you take know, part in. And I always am like, literally every time I do one, I'm like, I hate this, but I'm doing it because I feel like I liked. I just like to sh- show people what I like. I don't know. Um, so what it was 2014? So 2014, I picked Obvious Child. That was my favorite from that year. Um, That's a good but this one. this is a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 14 movies. So I was supposed to pick one per decade, but in 2011 I picked 14 or four movies, four, 14, four movies because 2011 is the greatest year of the decade in terms of films, in my humble opinion. Probably Inherent Vice would shoot up higher. I was looking at the list that I had for that year and there were a few films on it that I was like, have I actually revisited these? I don't know. Um, I feel like so you're going a really long way to I, not no, tell no, no, no. me what, what I'm trying I want to, say, to hear. What I'm trying to say is probably depending on how big I made the list, if like I did a top 25, I would imagine this movie would hit it now because I've revisited it more than a lot of movies that made my end of the year lists from the decade. That said, half of the list would probably be from 2011, so I don't know. That's a that's a roundabout way of saying listeners, I'm not sure. Listeners can't see, but I just deflated. <laughs> I just slumped over like a melted chocolate you know, covered banana. The other the other issue is I is I would have to pick it over because um, I try not to have repeat directors if I can help it, mm-hmm. and I would have to pick it over Phantom Thread, and I don't know that I could do that. Are you sure? Yeah, I really liked Phantom Thread. That is a really thirsty. Like, movie. and I couldn't put Phantom Thread on my end of the year list for that year because it didn't come to friggin' Atlanta I, at the time I lived in Atlanta mm-hmm. until January, and so I didn't get to see it early enough and because it totally would have I'm I don't know I don't know as as much as I love this film like something about you know I felt like we started really good and now something about the poisoning in Phantom Thread like I would I would be poisoning I would be the one poisoning that would be me I feel it Jesus Christ like you're gonna get yourself on an FBI watch list I'm gonna have to like delete this you know I have once been pulled over in a a, um, airport for having a weird (laughs) substance on my shoes so I'm probably already on a list. Oh my god! They had glycerin on my shoes, and I don't know why. Uh oh. <laughs> um, Where edit. did the glycerin come from? What did I step in? We're gonna have to edit all of this out. <laughs> like I don't want to be a party to anything that's gonna get a, get increment vice in trouble. You know. Come on now. I yeah. You step in things sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, we've learned a lot today. So you you would poison people for love? I you think? I might. If they need to settle down, if they need to slow down. You know, I haven't been in enough relationships to truly know what I would do in a real relationship. Well, I will. But I imagine that I would probably. That said, I don't. Do you need to be in a lot of relationships to know that you I, wouldn't poison I would, someone I to would the edge argue of death? Yes, <laughs> because I've observed a lot of relationships and the way people are when they've joined their lives together is very different than when you are a very solo hermit kind of person. And I am mostly a solo hermit kind of person. So I don't know what I if I would change or not. 
Mm-hmm. I don't have enough data. I don't know how much data you're <laughs> going to be able to accrue based on this episode. Yes, I am. Hear. I am always and um. perpetually single, <laughs> and probably because they everyone knows I might poison them. So. Yeah, that's it's fine. That and might, they threaten to punch people all the time. That might hurt your numbers, just like a smidge. Like lay off <laughs> on that. Like maybe leave that part out and like. I have at this point never poisoned anyone. Just for the record. Well, there's a hell of an endorsement. <laughs> yes. Anyway, if I'm never seen again, uh, thank did, you all I, for listening. I was not the one that bought the bananas, so. Well, that's true. That's true. But I do feel a little weird after having eaten mine. Like, I don't feel good. <laughs> this, I, I, it's a fine product. If anyone out there wants to go buy them, the, the, just, oof, oof. I thought it was tasty. Well, you can take the box with you. Okay. Because I'm not going to eat those. All right. <laughs> Oh, my God. This has been a lot of fun. (laughs) This is fun. This is a fun podcast. I have to ask one more thing before you go. One question that I was asked when I was starting this by another writer was, why do people who love this movie keep coming back to this movie as much as they do? You can love a movie and you don't rewatch it a billion times a year, five times a year. Whatever, however many times a year you come back to this, there can be plenty of movies that you go, oh, God, yes, oh, my God. I absolutely adore uh, Laura. Or I, you know, God, I, Cutter's Way. I love Cutter's Way, but I can't watch Cutter's Way all the time because it, it breaks my heart. But there's something about Inherent Vice that people who like Inherent Vice seem to always come back to Inherent Vice often, over and over and over again. Is it like that for you? I will say I watch Laura every year, sometimes multiple times. So, again, she's not answering my question. <laughs> um, I feel like I've probably rewatched this one in the last five years four times. So, not in 2015, obviously, because I didn't watch any films directed mm-hmm. by men. So, I think I've come back to it once a year, every year. And part of why I keep enjoying it is its setting. I love the Southern California setting. And I think it's one of the best crime films in the Southern California setting. Really? I will I will I will say that and there are a lot no of Because almost no one focuses on the crime stuff with well, this film. Well, I mean it's not the main point I think mm-hmm. of the film, but if I think it still fits as a crime film, mm-hmm. like I don't think you can divorce the crime from the film. And um I love watching crime films obviously. Yeah. Create an entire internet holiday around crime fiction. Um which by the way, you don't get enough credit for. You know. No one so we're going to stop real quick. <laughs> Ryan Gates. Old, at Old Films Flickr on Twitter, this is the woman who made November. You animals, when you enjoy yeah. it, everyone you know, should send her like a check for like three bucks that, or something. That first year, it was just me in the back of my house watching <laughs> movies. So is that what Inherent Vice means to you? Is um, that what it is to you when you think of it? You think of it as like, you know, I think of it, I always think of it as this is just a movie about loss. This is a movie about what it is to lose whatever it is that you care about, whatever it is that you love. You know, if inherent vice is all that you can't insure against, then for me, inherent vice is time mm-hmm. and what time takes. But the cool thing about this show is, as, as I've told you before, is being able just to talk to really interesting people about what this collection of themes and ideas mm-hmm. means to them. And for you, inherent vice, what does it mean for you? Is it, is it just, it, it's a cool it's ass a, 70s crime film. Yeah, that's what it is to me. It's a great neo noir. With. With an absolutely for you anyway delightful frozen chocolate snack. Yes, which awesome. what else can you ask for in the movie? That said, as 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 we as we leave the audience today, if you 
are lucky enough to meet my guest, Miss Mariah Gates, <laughs> and she offers you any kind of food <laughs> dish or pastry. Probably. You know what? Don't eat it. Just say, hey, I'm full. I just had lunch. You know, I just had a party last night and I served eggnog to a whole bunch of people and no one has died. Well. <laughs> Yet. Yeah. And I would like the phone numbers of all of the people that attended, please. <laughs> but on that, yeah. I, again, if you if you meet this 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 nice lady, just just keep keep the food out of it. <laughs> keep food out of it and stay safe, okay? Stay safe out there. On that note, thank you for coming today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming and talking about this amazing, amazing sunshine noir. Thank you for having this snack with me. I broadened my horizons a little it bit. It was good. Uh, I liked it. Well, I'm I, a fan of this particular frozen treats. So. I'm happy that you're happy. And yeah. I got the brand that you like. It's a great brand. Yeah, it's got a monkey on it. My throat feels weird now. It feels very really scratchy after. Maybe you're allergic to bananas. My brother's allergic to bananas. What was that? Oh, God. Jesus. He can't eat them. Well, um, as I get ready to slip into some kind of shock, <laughs> uh, I'm going to leave leave you all today. Mariah Gates, thank you again for coming in today. Thank you for talking about this. Thank you for November. Thank you for everything that you do at Old Films Flickr. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'll see you next time. Well, that was just about the most horny on main episode yet. Surfing from the rolling waves of Benicio's hairdo, up the cusp of Bigfoot's deep-throated bananarama, all the way down to Myra's tumescent tumbler repository of celebrity dick. Whew, but now that it's over, what comes next? The capital M mystery still looms before us. Mickey and Shasta are still missing. And just what, exactly, are Doc's feelings for his ex-old lady? We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.